Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and on today's podcast, I catch up with the guy who understands us better than most of us understand us. He's demographer and newspaper columnist Bernard Salt. Bernard went viral a couple of years ago worldwide when he was wrongly accused, he says, on Twitter and other social media platforms for bagging young people for wasting their money on treats such as smashed avocado. Uh, Bernard will write that wrong, but he's also worried about our love of intimate restaurants in the cool and groovy suburbs of our capital cities, all because of a little thing, no, a big thing, called the coronavirus and its long-term effects. Well, let's just see what he has to say about that, and I hope he's wrong, but he could be right. And then we meet the CEO of a gold mining company, only a stone's throw from Melbourne. You wouldn't think that would happen nowadays. And finally, we catch up with the founder of Tilly Money, Maureen Jordan, to see what interesting things Tilly Money is out there teaching us all about money. Well, joining me now is a guy who I often think of as Mr. Australia. Now, he would probably laugh at that, but when you think about it, all the columns he's written over the years are all about us. And so in many ways... He has internalised, I think, the Australia that he describes. Bernard Salt, thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. Am I going too far to to call you Mr Australia? (laughs) Well, I I don't think in the traditional sense that I am in any way uh, Mr (laughs) Australia, but I will say that I find the Australian people, our geography, our demography, our culture, and our shifting and shuffling around Australia, endlessly fascinating. I might have a, you know, the memory of a goldfish, but I, I never cease to be um, amused by or engaged by the, um, you know, how, how we are populating and behaving uh, in Australia. Yeah. Now, um, a lot of people might have got to know you um, when you had a, a shot at poor young people and their passion for... <laughs> Smashed avocado. And uh, mm. I'm, I'm, now I'm bringing that up so people say, oh, yeah, that guy. Let's hope Switzer gives it to him. <laughs> okay. Yep. But why did you just explain how the smashed avocado thing came sure. about? Well, well, this was a, this is a column I wrote for the Weekend Australian magazine in October 2016. And uh, I'd only just started writing the column for the, um, for, for the magazine, so people didn't really quite know my style. And um, my style is that I can occasionally um, be satirical. Mm. Um, And if you didn't know my style, then perhaps you would take every word I say to be literally what I mean. Mm. However, however, if you'd read the opening of that column, it was clearly satirical. Um, It opens with um, shush. Uh, come close to the page. I don't want other people to hear what I'm about to say. Yeah. So that's a clue that you know what I'm about to say is you know yeah. um, is, is meant to be uh, tongue in cheek. And what it was was a parody of middle age finger wagging of of younger people. Yeah. And and in order to do that, I can said you know um, uh, I see young people eating smashed avocado. Shouldn't they be saving for a house? That should have had quotes around it to say that. I'm actually quoting other people when they say that. Yeah. But but when it gets into Twitter, you know, people don't sort of worry too much about the you know the the nuances of it all. Mm. And look, uh, you know, I have to say that you know here we are four years later, and everyone seems to uh, get what I was um, meaning. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, be great brand recognition. I, must say. <laughs> That's right. I think yeah, I think Tim Gurner might have fallen into it as well after probably reading your column and. He got in a whole lot of trouble on a current affair for, for talking about And I think he also was a little bit more sympathetic uh, for, for younger people. Okay, but let's, let's find out why, you know, you thought it was your responsibility to analyse finger-waving Australians and smashed avocado. And I've got to say, you know, we have an office in Melbourne, though I haven't seen it since March 22, Bernard, um, the, the Melbournians do love a, a good smashed avocado on a Saturday morning, don't they? <laughs> uh, we do. In fact, uh, yes, I'm a proud Melbournian. <laughs> and uh, we have a very strong um, cafe culture uh, or had a very strong cafe culture and um, very European. 
Mm. Um, uh, certainly, the inner part of Melbourne is very Parisian. I think, mm. uh, particularly in the uh, in the summer months, um, we even we dress similarly. Uh, maybe not uh, quite as haute couture uh, <laughs> as Paris, but certainly you know that obsession with black yeah. and culture and you know highfalutin chat and. Yeah, all I that think sort you're a little thing. bit more tolerant than the Parisian when it comes to uh, Australians as well. Uh, well, um, you know, I, I quite like the uh, the French. I, I don't find them intolerant uh, at at all. But um, that's because you're do, a Renaissance man. Uh, well, I suppose I, I also speak just a little bit yeah. uh, of French, uh, un petit, <laughs> a little bit. Um, but um, look, it's certainly Melbourne is a very unique part of Australia, very unique culture. Every city, I think, has its uh, attributes mm. uh, and its peccadilloes, and we are an sort of a, an outdoorsy dining sort of culture mm. uh, that take our, um, uh, our culture quite seriously, I would have thought. Mm. And um, so, yes, uh, again, it's endlessly fascinating how it's evolving or changing, whether it's Melbourne or whether it's Sydney or Brisbane. Um, mm. You know, I find it all interesting. Okay. So who is Bernard Salt? Tough question. <laughs> uh, well, I I like I get that question occasionally, and I like to describe myself as a failed history and geography school teacher. Mm. So I uh, I trained mm. to be a school teacher, uh, got out into teaching rounds, and discovered, oh, these kids aren't as absolutely <laughs> enthusiastic about my yeah. subject area yeah. as I am. Yeah. So I took the coward's way out, went back to university, did another degree, yeah. and uh, on the evolution of uh, of Melbourne. And uh, you know, after that, fell into consulting, advisory, and I don't know, just had an aptitude for numbers, history, geography, and storytelling. I suppose. Curi day, curiosity is. is a very important part of what you do, isn't it? You're curious about the things we do and why we do it. Very much so. Um, and um, people will say to me, especially if they've heard me heard me speak or, or whatever, they'll say, "Oh, you're very passionate." You're very, uh, get very enthusiastic about it, yeah. and uh, I suppose I do. I, I never, never occurred to me that um, that I, I that become that committed or interested in the uh, in the subject. Uh, at the end of the day, what my skill set is is taking a set of numbers and um, and looking at a story that that flows from the numbers. Mm. The numbers are actually boring; it's the story behind the numbers that is fascinating and that people relate to. And what they really like is when you can say, look, here is a set of numbers and here is how I am interpreting it. Here's what I think it says about you and us as a people. And people will say, oh, yes, I get that. He's not talking about me, but I know people like that mm. and, uh, and they connect with it. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the influences because I know when I was a young man and I actually survived teaching for a a few years before I retreated to teach at university. Mm. But um, I, I was influenced by, apart from the, the economists who I read, people like Alan Wood and the Australian and Ross Gittins and people like that, uh, David Clark. I also used to be influenced by um, Hugh McKay. Um, and I, I'm wondering, has you been an influence on the sort of stuff you do? Oh, very much so. In fact, uh in the 1980s, there were a couple of uh, commentators around at the time that I absolutely absorbed every word mm. that was published. Um, and Hugh McKay, of course, was the the doyen and still active, still out there. I saw him on Q and A uh, recently. I must get and him. I must get rid of you and put him on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Get the real talent. Uh, but very considered, yeah. very very smart. I remember maybe 20 years ago he was commenting about the census and he's, he made the comment, you know, we really are a nation of tribes. And I thought, oh, what a, mm. what a brilliant observation. I'd yeah. never heard it mm. like that. He just comes in from a high altitude in that calm voice and you think, oh, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the impact that a, a, an interpreter like that or an influencer like that can have. All of a sudden you view things uh, differently. Mm. The other person whom I really admire, I mean, admire them both, um, is Phil Riven, who's oh, the chairman of yes. IBIS. Yeah. I mean, look at what Phil has achieved. 
I mean, I've, I've had a couple of lunches with uh, with Phil, and um, yeah, that could be dangerous. That, that could be very yeah, dangerous. Right. <laughs> well, not for me. I'm, I'm a teetotaler, but no. but um, but they're about the same age as uh, as Hugh. And Phil has actually built a business, a business um, information mm. business, world class business. Global. That's gone global, mm. and uh, and he loves the big picture, swashbuckling view of history, and you know his his ability to cite figures and to get things in proportion um an extraordinarily remarkable mind and uh, and achievement yeah so uh, both of them um clearly big influences there was another one out of america just to get a gender balance mm. here yeah. uh, a lady by the name of faith popcorn yeah i knew you'd say that oh, faith. <laughs> who, yeah. who um in the early 1990s published a book called clicking mm. and uh she talked about cocooning uh, and I really liked her style. She was more flamboyant, mm. whereas um, Hugh and Phil were more measured in their approach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I took a little bit from everyone. I a name like Faith Popcorn and you said she was flamboyant. Gee, that's a surprise. Isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Well, it is. I think I think she had some very difficult to pronounce Polish name, yeah. uh, which the Americans condensed down into, uh, into popcorn. Okay, so you went back to academia um, and I, I remember that you, when you were at KPMG, correct me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong, was one yes. of those big. And so when you arrived on, you know, occasional columns in newspapers that became regular columns, they always used to credit um, that you were from a partner. Were you, were you a partner at KPMG? I, I was indeed, yes, yeah, for, okay. uh, for many years. Yeah, and, and I, so I thought you were a boring accountant. Uh, no, no, I'm not but, an accountant. But I know you, you explained to me over the years you weren't. But um, why did KPMG have you? Like, what was your I point? Don't, I don't know. Well, look, I suppose um, I, I don't know how, how I managed to sort of weasel my way in <laughs> and then, and then to, uh, to, to get through. Look, they're, they're very supportive and um, some terrific mentors mm. and champions and sponsors. And I think... Look, at the end of the day, if you can have an impact and if clients like what you have to say, mm. then, then um, you know, business will, will give you a go. And um, I have no doubt at all that I could never have achieved uh, what I have achieved, not that it's... Not that's you know terrific, you know, out of the ordinary, but it is without, out of the without, ordinary. No, 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 no. We, we, you know, I still haven't built a business like Phil Riven mm. has. Is mm. the is the point? But um, you know, certainly KPMG is very, very um, supportive, um, and um, still very close to the firm. So, and lots of great friends there. Mm. But some terrific mentors. You know, maybe people you know sort of five, ten years older than me. And it's very important, particularly when you have very high public profile to have people sort of you know you can just sort of see this is how this is how you behave mm. and and operate in a in a corporate sense so uh, it was very very stabilizing i felt what do you find interesting about demographics and forecasting social changes well the what i find interesting is that no one knows mm. no one, you get into the you know into the inner sanctum on a on a retreat or a strategy session with the CEO and the board and all of that sort of thing, uh, no one has any idea. You'll have the economists will come on and they'll say, oh, you know, the dollar is this and the exchange rate is that and, you know, whatever it is. I do more than that when I come <laughs> on. But, Much more than that I do, but go on. But 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 they, that skill set really talks about here and now and maybe three months or six months, mm. and maybe 12 months out into the future. But a board and a CEO, board in particular, is very interested in, you know what, I remember once uh, uh, a board member from a very major um, financial institution came up to me in an event once, in a morning tea, and he said, um, uh, you know, what really interests me and us is, are we in the right place at the right time offering the right product? And I thought, what what a what a fantastic insight or yeah, question that was mm-hmm. because everything else if you're in the right place at the right time offering the right product everything else is just operational mm. i mean you know you, you can tighten this and you can loosen that and you can multi- modify that but if you're basically you know in in the wrong place offering the wrong product at the wrong time then no amount of hard work or smart people or investment in this or investment in that is going to get you out of it. You've got to make sure you're positioned well. And that's where my view of the world, this sort of big picture, high altitude, 
here is what I think is going to evolve in the 2020s and here is the reason for it. Mm. That's where um, management teams and boards become very interested. And my, I suppose, skill set or advantage is that I try to tell that story based on numbers, whereas other people will say, oh, you know, technology is going to take over and this and that. Mm. Yeah, okay, that's, you know, you're just asserting that. You can't, you can't prove it. Yeah. And, you know, I can't prove anything either, but I've got a logic train and evidence to say, look, based on these numbers, this is what's happened in the past and these are the numbers that are going into the future, therefore this will happen in the future. Mm. That, that is more convincing to a uh, CEO and board than just straight <clears throat> assertion. At the moment, you're making me feel a bit embarrassed, um, Bernard, because you know, I really could have made a bit of money out of you if I'd really thought <laughs> not only are you telling me about the future but where I should invest as a consequence because people are always asking me where they should invest. Which so, invest. Yeah. So, Do you know, I, when I first started speaking on the speaking circuit maybe 18 years or so ago, after about the first year, you know, I'd be flying all over the country and I'd come home. And um, I remember once I came home and uh, I said to my wife, oh, I had these, you know, I was in Cairns or wherever it was, and I, and I said, oh, this, this person came up to me and said, look, Bernard, I bought your book about the sea change shift and uh, I bought all this property. And I thought, oh, gosh, you're going to say, it's gone terrible. And he said, and it's gone so well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. That was terrific advice. Mm. And um, I got home and I told my wife, I thought, oh, I suppose I was sort of, showing off yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a sense and uh she did not see that at all she said why didn't we do all that <laughs> <laughs> i've copped that as well you know, yeah all, all my tips on on tv yeah i've actually copped that as well but it's a good point it's a very good point well it you're is a good point she's well look I, I, i'm not um I, I don't i'm not an investor or a developer or anything like mm, that mm. and uh you know i think you need a particular mindset and courage um, as well. And courage. Yeah. Look, it is real courage. Mm. And I'm sorry, I'm too conservative. Yeah. Um, you know, I find, you know, um, money and wealth too hard to accumulate mm. to, uh, to risk it. I just don't have, I'm just not built that way. Okay. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to, just for a short term, I'm going to actually tap into what you think might happen with um, online, online purchasing by Australians because this uh, damn coronavirus has made people stay at home and they are now doing a lot more online purchasing than ever before. What do you think? I, Is this trend going to continue, do you think, mate? Yeah, I do. I do think it's going to continue. I don't think it's going to continue in a straight line and we won't have shopping centres anymore, mm. but I think that that a greater proportion of retail sales will be done through online and um, delivery to, to the home. Mm. Um, I will say that prior to the coronavirus, I had never bought anything online mm. ever. Really? My wife had. You are old-fashioned, aren't I you? I am, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, um, uh, but I have learnt yeah. how to do that. And my argument is, well, if someone like me learns mm. how to do it and yeah. then say, actually, this is quite easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just and, and, and it's so easy just press this and press that can become a little too easy at times. Mm. And you think, well, that that is really a, um, um, a transition point mm. uh, compared to where we were. And I think uh, what this coronavirus is doing is hastening people's transition into the digital world. And uh, so let's just say that, uh, I don't know, maybe 5% or a bit more of retail sales is done online at the moment in mm. Australia. Yeah. I don't think that's going to go to, you know, 100%, but it might uh, it might go from 5% to, say, 15%, yeah. something like that, over the next two or three years, and then it'll sort of plateau uh, is the way I would uh, I would see it. Look, at the end of the day, people want still want the experience of going to a shopping centre. There's certain things that you, you know, are most unlikely to buy uh, online, you know, like a suit or you know, a, mm. a dress or something like that, I imagine. But, but, but the funny, funny thing is that women buy dresses all the time online. And, and I would say my daughter-in-law who, uh, you know, runs a, a fashion magazine, she got me a Burberry suit online, which I wear today, um, fit like, fitted like a glove um, and was about, you know, $700 cheaper than in a, in a shop. So 
that's, well, even old well, blokes like us can do it, mate. Well, the, the, this uh, this reflects my conservative nature <laughs> yet again, that uh, I wouldn't be brave enough. I'd buy a book online mm. or, you know, it's something that I know what it does, I know broadly what its cost is, mm. and uh, and it's very, very convenient because you don't have to go down, you have to find a park or whatever you mm. just I know that I want that and uh, and you have it delivered but anything from a discretionary point of view requiring you know touching or wearing or whatever I would um, I would really struggle with that I understand other people less so but uh, um, you know I, it's, it's just not for me okay um, you, you are coming across as the cowardly demographer <laughs> not, not that there's anything wrong with that because you're very honest about it let's go to another issue is what Industry. Now, what business do you think really is going to come out of the coronavirus period in really bad shape? Have you thought about that? If not, so um, it's, a good, it's a good theme for a story. What business is going to really suffer because of the consequence of the coronavirus? Well, I suppose you know my my concern would be for those um, a lot of those inner city cafes mm. that are very congested, very European. You know, in a French restaurant cafe mm. uh, where you where you have to pull the tables out in order yeah. to get into yeah. them, and it's all you know you can get a lot of turnover. You know, it's good for the cafe because you're a lot of turnover per square meter, yeah. um, and that was all very European and very sophisticated and. Uh, Shishi, I think, mm. is the term they have regarded yeah. to refer to it. I just do not think, even after the coronavirus, I think there will be a nagging uh, doubt that many people have that the that the congestion that we once regarded as evidence of sophistication and and high culture mm. suddenly seems risky. I blame um, uh, an uh, an American academic by the name of Richard Florida who wrote a book called The Rise of the Creative Class almost 20 years ago. And his argument was that the rising uh, segment of um, knowledge workers all clustered together in the inner suburbs like Brooklyn in America, mm. in, in New York or Austin, Texas or wherever it was. You, they would feed off each other and create this energy, this um, this biosmosis, this uh, this creative mm. um, uh, culture, if you like, and and we mimicked it yeah. in Australia. The problem is that works really well up until we've had exposure to a pandemic, and then all of a sudden, the congestion that once held that inner city culture together suddenly becomes a liability. So the whole of the the inner suburban narrative of Australia. Um, and including high rise, you would have to say is now would now be being questioned, mm. including including lifts mm. for apartments and also for office buildings. Yeah. How do you, how do you get you know four thousand people into a fifty story office building to start at nine o'clock? I mean, you can't have thirty people in a lift anymore. Mm. Yeah. Even after the pandemic, I think people will feel uncomfortable. And on that subject, I've noticed our leaders seem scared to tell us, wear masks, you idiots. Have you, now, why is that? Why, like, for example, that, that, the issue about the lifts. If we're all wearing masks, it does reduce the chances yeah. of a problem. But even Gladys Berejiklian, who's doing a pretty good job at you know, using the seek and destroy method, of, you know, wherever there's a, a cluster, get in there and destroy it, she hasn't had the guts to say, you're not allowed to go on public transport unless you're wearing a mask. What is that? Is it an Australian thing that the leaders are too afraid to tell us to do something like that? I, I, I do think that it's a um, um, outside a pandemic or outside a you know, direct threat from a pandemic. It, it does seem like a, um, a big step for Australians. Um, although any Australian that will have visited uh, Tokyo or mm. um, Hong Kong or any of the really congested um, Asian cities will know that even prior to the pandemic, it's very common um, yeah. in big cities in Asia for people, you know, they're culturally they're quite comfortable uh, in that uh, space. We don't have that culture. So it, it seems like a big step for us. Mm. But I do think that, uh, that we will see more of it going forward. We're not seeing the... Um, uh, the AFL Grand Final in Melbourne this year. Uh, it's not at the MCG, but but if you push, just think about the next one in 2021, 
And if you could pan across 100,000 people gathered in Melbourne in 2021, let's just say six, seven months after the worst of the pandemic is over at yeah. that time, I think that you would see maybe 10% of the audience or mm. the, um, the, uh, the people, the spectators would be wearing a mask, whereas a year ago you wouldn't mm. have seen any. So coming out of this, maybe 10% of people at public gatherings will feel more comfortable if they are wearing a mask. Your, you know, the point you made is that well, that still leaves ninety yeah. percent that need to be uh, need to be encouraged mm. to uh, to do that. I, I said earlier, Bernard, when it all happened, I said, make us wear masks and put them in our club colours. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> There's a that's business true. opportunity there, which can yeah, to, to actually promote it. Yeah. Yes, but very early on in the pandemic, um, the advice, as I recall, was that uh, we didn't have to wear masks or no. we shouldn't have to wear masks no. whatever then it then it flipped i yeah. i never quite understood why the um there was the uh, didn't you know mm. sort of like here's here's some advice and now we've completely changed yeah. the advice in the opposite direction i think it was odd. political fear i, I really I, aussies don't like being bossed around and the whole concept of, like i <laughs> i'll wear a mask if everyone's wearing a mask i don't really want to uh but i think it makes a lot of sense like if i'm going to jump on a, f a ferry or a tram or whatever uh, I'm happy to wear a mask. And, but the um, thing, one, one thing I'll throw in to you, I also like it because because I'm on TV, a lot of people know me. I thought this would be great. I can walk <laughs> through. You, know, you can disguise. That's right. I walked straight into a shop the first time I wore a mask and the guy said to me, hey, Switz, what's happened to the economy? And I was wearing a big <laughs> black mask. They got me. So. Straight away. Yeah. Uh, yes, well, um, uh, I must say that you know I'm coming to you from from lockdown in Melbourne at the moment, and uh, every every day I go for a bike ride. That's my you know one hour yeah. uh, exercise, and I, I will say that Melburnians have been extraordinarily compliant mm. or vigilant in um, in uh, wearing masks. You just do not see people walking around yeah. without a mask, and it's it's so obvious. And you would be challenged if you did. If you were walking on a walking path without mm. a mask, mm. someone would say, yeah. uh, you know, call you to account. So, mm. uh, no, it's it's certainly something that we have embraced for for this purpose. Let's talk about Melbourne. Mm -hmm. um, what's the spirit like in the city? Um, look, I I have to say that the first wave uh, were very buoyant. Mm. Um, that we've got this, no worries, we're doing well, the numbers were good. And in fact, you know, there was the Ruby Princess in Sydney at the time and mm. we were thinking, well, we're pretty confident down here yeah. that, uh, that we had this covered. Uh, and then, of course, the second wave um, really did, um, you could actually see, gone was the humour. Mm. Early on, we would joke. Uh, and you know, there'd be funny memes and all sorts of stories about, you know, coping with lockdown and, and so mm. forth. Uh, the humour, I noted, disappeared in the second lockdown. Mm. And then, of course, over the last week and a half or so, with an extension of the second lockdown, uh, that's that's where it's, you know, it's certainly become much more... Um, uh, much, much more divisive. You know, some are for, some are against. Mm. Um, I, I would like to think that when we get through this, that that we will actually find it has been a, a galvanising experience, a bit like going through war, mm. in the sense that at the time, in the moment, you're very frightened, you're very scared, you're very this and that. But when you get through the other side and you're victorious and you've, you've been delivered from, to safety... Uh, then you look back and say, well, actually, everyone did do their bit. Everyone tried. We're all in that together. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's that shared common experience, I suppose. Will Hopefully the, it'll create a stronger city on the other side is the point. Will there be a lasting effect of the, the shock of having to go into lockdown again? I, I do think that um, an event such as this does have an impact uh, going forward, you know, I mentioned or I have mentioned uh, elsewhere that um, uh, things like the millennium drought, which was particularly bad in, in Melbourne, mm. you walk around Melbourne at the moment and every suburban home has water tanks. Mm. You now, it's, it's like a, it's a hangover. It's a legacy yeah. from, the, uh, from, the, from the drought. I think that there will be similar sorts of legacies carried on from the coronavirus. I do think that um, 
we will see a far greater proportion of Melbournians wearing masks in on public transport and at you know events like the MCG or something like that. Mm. Not anywhere near the majority, but you will see uh, evidence uh, of that. I think there will be a reticence to embrace that inner city congested dining environment that mm. was so chic and Parisian will now just seem like dangerous. Um, so I do think that our um, uh, we'll see a far greater proportion of people working from home. I think that that will apply right across Australia. Again, not not the majority of workers, but mm. you know maybe prior to the coronavirus, it was five percent. Uh, it might be ten percent of mm. workers working from home uh, going going forward. The home will change. Um, the home office can't be just a bit of a bench where you open a laptop. You actually need you know monitors and cameras and webcam and all that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, so I, I do think that our way of life and work and shopping um, and entertainment, no doubt, will, uh, will change. Is Zoom with us forever now? Do you know, I did not know what a Zoom meeting was mm. five months ago. No, not only do I now know what Zoom is, I've learned all these other technologies mm. and I've got monitors and cameras and lights and all that sort of thing, all ordered online, I will say. Mm. Um, so it has, we have had to learn very, very quickly uh, new skills, new technologies. And you know, I suppose that's the reality of life in the 21st century, that we have had to pivot and we've had to respond. We've had to adapt. We've had to learn skills that are outside our traditional skill set uh, in order to uh, to survive or thrive. And there is a sense, great sense of achievement once you once you manage that. Now once I now I can log on to log in to Zoom, connect with you, mm. uh, do this, and um, no, it's a, it, it, it's a terrific experience. I think it, it's it's certainly a, su a superior experience to what we had previously. But mm. we would never have got this far without the pandemic. Let's to drill down finally to an area that you know, is dear to both our hearts: the the speaking circuit, the events, uh, the events that we have gone physically to for, mm. for, as you say, eighteen years. I think I started in nineteen ninety one. Um, when you when you think it through, you know, and I'm doing. Uh, virtual conferences and I'm sure you are as well do you think that that, that these will disappear or there'll be a, a yearning to, for people to get together in these conferences and and enjoy the kinds of educational experiences that you know we've been a part of for a long time I, I do think that the um, the corporate event conferences uh, will be back. There is a lot to be gained by having people in the same room. Um, as much as riveting as speakers like yourself and myself are, Peter, absolutely, I, I think totally the reality is that that a lot of a lot of people's experiences with conferences come from the chance meetings and the chance discussions mm. with their peers or competitors or, or whatever, being in the uh, same room. At the end of the day, we are. Humans are tribal people. We, we enjoy and benefit from uh, moving and mixing and together, riffing off each other, learning from each other. Um, certainly at the moment, the, the speaking circuit is now virtual, as you've said. There's, there's also a hybrid model emerging. So um, I did a, an event last week where I was on a screen beaming in from Melbourne, but there might have been maybe 50 people in a, in a very large conference room. Uh, mm. As such, so you can actually get this hybrid event as well. But it, look, it may well be. You know, I, I don't really expect um, in-person type conferences to uh, kick off until you know, the first quarter of next year, mm. and even then, uh, maybe in a limited capacity. Yeah. So airlines, do you think we're that they're going to suffer? Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely, airlines. I mean, international airlines. Uh, Qantas must be. <laughs> it's just you know. Um, um, very badly affected by uh, by this event, and I've I've suggested things like you know I have no idea how long it's going to take to get a vaccine up, tested, and um, um, across all the population. I mean that that is going to take years. I would have uh, thought the whole industry, the speaking industry, and the hospitality industry, and the aviation industries uh, as well would be there'd be a game changer if there was an instant coronavirus test. You know how you, you go into a shop and they'll yeah. put that temperature gun on your head? But if mm. that could turn up and say yes or no, 
you, you would know instantly that this person is affected and then they would be denied entry and there'd be a protocol to manage that. Mm. If, you, if you could not board a plane without having that tested negative, as soon as you got off the plane, you would be tested again. Mm. By, by developing that sort of uh, technology and protocol, you could manage and you could live quite easily, I think, with coronavirus because you would identify it and corral it uh, immediately. Mm. Yeah. Exactly right. Mate, it's been a great uh, pleasure catching up with you. Um, you've, you've given us some revelations about you. We now know you're a cowardly demographer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank but you. you're also a very insightful one. Though. Thank you for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. All right, it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today I'm, I've got a new sponsor. It's Switzer Advisory. Now, why am I doing an ad for Switzer Advisory? Well, I'm starting to realise that people don't realise that my organisation actually is a financial planning business. Yep, some people have said to me, we didn't even know you guys did financial planning. We started it many years ago, we rebate commissions, we charge flat dollar fees, we try to do it the most honest way imaginable. So if you think you need some help with your money planning, your building of wealth, think about Switzer Advisory. Go to switzeradvisory.com.au. Well, most of us would think that uh, when you talk about gold mines, it'd be in Western Australia or maybe in Africa or some places like that. But here's a, um, a new mine that's listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. It's called North Store Mines. And we're talking to the CEO, Stephen Tambarnas. And this is a, a mine not too far from good old Melbourne. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. And thanks very much for having me. So, um, yep, I'm um, very keen to tell everybody who we are and what we're doing. Okay. Well, for, for those people who are geographically challenged, how far is this gold mine from Melbourne? Okay. Well, it's exploration tenure. It's um, about 240 kilometres west of um, uh, Melbourne, um, immediately north of the township of Stall. And Stall's an old gold mining district. Mm. Um, it contains the Stahl Gold Mine, which has produced five million ounces in its uh, in its past history, and uh, it's kicked off uh, a new lease of life a couple of years ago. Uh, it's uh, producing. It's owned by a private consortium led by the Victor Smorgan Group. Okay, so are we talking about an old mine that was seen to be unproductive, but you guys now have made it productive? Um, yeah, well, uh, I'll, th there's a distinction there. The, mm. the, the mine itself is operational. That's owned by Stahl Gold Mines. They vended off all of their exploration tenements to the to the north. So we have 500 square k's of ground immediately to the north of the um, Stahl Gold Mine. Yep. There's um, there are a lot of similarities um, geologically. It's in the Stahl Mineralized Corridor. We can see 17 um, similar domes to uh, what hosts the um, Stahl Gold Mine. So that's what we're going to be exploring in the next two years. And for people who have no idea, see, Steve, you, know, you understand this, but there are normal people out there who don't understand what you mining people, you know, operate off. So explain to us why you would think, because there's been a, a well-known gold mine installed for. I guess, over centuries, centuries and a bit, why would you then yeah. think somewhere nearby there could be more gold to be dug in Demdeer Hills? Yeah, look, um, very, very much so. I mean, we, we see this as a regional play. The Stahl Mineralised Corridor mm. has been uh, explored over the last 40 years, initially by Western Mining, um, uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm. And um, a host of uh, owners of the Stahl Gold Mine since then, but there's been quite a bit of new work done on the geology models and exploration models. The Stahl Gold Mine's a really good example. Uh, three years ago, when it was purchased in care and maintenance from Kirkland Lake Gold, um, there were 60,000 ounces of resources. And in the last uh, two years, the exploration work there has done a phenomenal job and found another half a million ounces. So mm. given that the mine's got an initial history of five million ounces, mm. um, I, I, I think that's a phenomenal um, outcome. And they're discovering more um, uh, gold the more they drill at the moment. Okay. So 
we've been very lucky to get their exploration manager from Stor Gold Mines to join us in this um, uh, exploration program to the north. Mm. Um, we've got lots of ideas, a really good team. And uh, we've raised $20 million to, to go and do this work over the next two years. Okay. So, and you're now listed on the ASX? Uh, we're in the last throes of listing. We allotted um, shares yesterday. We'll, we expect to list uh, um, Tuesday next week. Okay. So, you're very close. Now, for people who don't yep. understand the stages of mining, where are you, you, you mentioned the word exploration already. Explain what the the money will be used for in these early stages. Right. Well, um, it is um, very, very much an exploration play. Um, I'm an exploration geologist. The team that we're putting together, they're all exploration geologists. And uh, what we're doing over the next two years is uh, 75,000 metres of drilling is what we've budgeted in this 50-kilometre uh, corridor to the north of the Stahl Gold Mine. We'll be doing geophysics. We're updating a lot of old data. I mean, we've got a, a fantastic old data set from the last 40 years of exploration, but we can see gaps and holes here and there and just introducing some new technology, 3D uh, imagery, for example, just assists so much to uh, interpret complex data sets mm. and uh, we'll put together a really good team of people to to do that. So it's geochemistry, geophysics, and lots of drilling. Mm. So tell us about the the people who are involved in this, because there are some people who would make a lot of people think, gee, if those guys are interested, it must be interesting. Um, yeah, sure. Well, the the um, Stahl Gold Mine is owned by Victor Smorgan Group uh, and a, a consortium of uh, other investors. And they have um, vended off the exploration tenure. Uh, we've been very, very fortunate to get Jerry Ellis to come on on board as our uh, chairman, and uh, we have two um, really well credentialed exploration uh, geologists, Graham Brown and Alastair Waddell, mm. uh, on the board, and uh, we have Campbell Olson from Arate Capital. Mm. So I, I think for a junior company, we're we're punching well above our weight for. Quality yeah. of board and Jerry Ellis was the former chair of BHP. Correct. Mm. Yep. Okay, so tell us what you think is the the timeline, and of course we've all, we've seen the movies. It's like uh, drilling for oil or you're digging for gold. You, you want to yell out Eureka at some point in time along the line, but what's your expectation, Stephen? What's your hope and expectation for this? Well, look, we have a very, very good understanding of the Stahl gold mine. It's sitting on a basalt dome called the Magdala Dome um, uh, at Stahl. We can see 17 analogous um, basalt structures uh, to the north within our tenure. Uh, we know that some of them are gold mineralized. Um, the big question is how gold mineralized are they? And um, this is where uh, our drilling will um uh, you know that'll be the um, uh, that'll be the ultimate truth. So um, we have good targets. We're, we're going to be commencing drilling, um, yeah, pretty much within the next thirty to sixty days on some of the more advanced projects. But we we have probably well, we've got over forty gold targets to um, to work our way through over the next two years. So um, it's just systematic, uh, good old-fashioned uh, exploration work. But mm. I've got a, I've got an amazing team um, being put together to uh, to do that. And what will these the shares list at? Um, well, we're uh, we're issuing um, we're raising twenty million dollars at fifty cents a share. So forty million new shares coming on board. Mm. We'll have a market cap of sixty million dollars um, on listing. Well, mate, it's a it's a very interesting thing to do. Um, we keep our fingers crossed for you, um, and we hope that you Thank can you. you can call out Eureka ASAP. Yeah, well, look, well, um, thanks very much for that. We'll have plenty of news flow coming out, and um, you know, plenty to do as well. And we'll have uh, rig spinning as, uh, as as quickly as practical. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, Peter. That's Stephen Tambanis, the CEO of North Stall Mines. And as I say, let's hope they hit um, pay dirt and call out Eureka ASAP. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> 
Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. So yep. Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan mm. um, that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is our regular catch-up with the inspirational founder of the Tilly Money website. This website's been designed to try and educate more and more women about the wonderful world of money. And that person is Maureen Jordan. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Peter. And I probably would have rephrased that and said something like the world of wonderful women. Wow. And, and, money. And, and the money that they, money, they're yeah. trying to attract. Yeah, Look. I'd rather the adjective um, wonderful describing women. Okay. Hmm. Okay, it's not unusual for you to... We start with a fight. Yeah, and also dispute <laughs> the way I see the world. Hey, but look, for those people who don't know, what does Tilly Money set out to do and what is it doing? Okay, well... We're setting out to lift the financial understanding um, of money for women in particular. We're not excluding blokes, but um, but historically there's been emphasis on money and education about money and jobs in the money world um, has been very male-dominated. So the idea behind Tilly Money is really to lift the financial education of women, they're in focus, and then through that the thing would be that it leads to greater financial independence. So if we had a really key goal, it would be the financial independence of women because that's a very empowering thing, you know, mm. to be able to know that you can financially look after yourself no matter what happens. Do, do you think women become good at money or better at money when they're thrown into that difficult situation, when they might be in a relationship, a kid comes along, you know, they might not be working full-time anymore, they've got... Uh, home loans and all that sort of stuff and all of a sudden they have to step up to the plate and they actually do learn a fair bit about at least budgeting and making it work. I think if they've had a good role model they do you know like if they've had a, a parent an aunt a close friend somebody there who's always been in the background and they've seen you know by osmosis or by example that they do I don't think necessarily I think you know some women are good at money some aren't some yeah. men are good at managing money um, some aren't but this is just more than about managing just your household finances because I think a lot of women have been pretty good at this. Mm. This is about learning how to make money. Yeah, build you know, so wealth. Build your wealth, yes, mm. more than anything. Okay, so what have been the the big hits that you've delivered on the, the Tilly Money website over the past month? Well, we've tried to have a real diverse content um, even in the way that we present it with television, um, videos, I should say, TV kind of shows. And, um, and then we have podcasts where we interview, you know, you know, notable women and women who've got a real story to tell. And they become the role models um, in this thing that I always call, talk about called my skyscraper of role models. So, and we then we also have a lot of articles and how-tos. And that's the first stage of Tilly Money. There will be other stages that come in as we progress the development of the website. But so we've had a cross range um, of different articles. You know, we've looked at the situation with AMP and QBE and 
we're always focusing on money, but what's been going on in corporate Australia to some extent? You know, there's been discrimination and harassment. Um, these kind of things are coming more and more to the surface and hopefully you know, hopefully we'll unearth them and mm. then just work the way we're supposed to work as well, equals. Both those cases, AMP and QBE, ended up seeing CEOs getting the chop. Yeah. Uh, mm. Chairmans have gone. Yeah. Um, in one case it was harassment. In one case it was just basically a relationship. But it's it's a very it's a minefield now for, for all people in the workplace if they're starting to think about having relationships at the highest levels. Oh, very much so. And, you know, it begs the question, you know, would women be better, you know, in higher levels or would at least a representation of women? So mm. if you had um, as the leaders of companies, whether that be on the boards or within the company itself, you know, CEO and senior management, if there were more women, would this harassment and discrimination go on in the first place? And those kind of things, you know, need to be addressed. And I note with AMP, we've got a, um, a female chairman there now. So uh, it's serious stuff, really serious. No one should feel harassed, sexually harassed or discriminated in the workplace and then be, you know, compensated, pay kind of like quiet money, you know, to shut up, shut up and go away. And the funny thing is you can never shut these things up. They no. always come to the surface. The fire movement, what's that? Okay, now this is an article that Claire um, has written, Claire Osman, um, who's a prolific content producer on the site, and FIRE stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. And it's a group of young people in mm. particular who they've probably looked at people like maybe like us who have flogged themselves to death, mm. um, you know, to buy assets and to build a business and, you know, largely to have a good life and work for your family. Give people like Claire Rosman a job. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> she's um, recording this podcast now and she's got a big grin on her face. But but it's a group of people, to the extent of the um, of the FIRE movement, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but, you know, there's a, a, a growing swell of, of people who are discontented with the idea of, you know, nine till five every day, mm. working hard, to make a living, I'm going to burst into song now, um, and Don't. buy a house which they say they can't afford. Yeah. And rather than do that, they're split into two groups. One is the group that does it really, really frugally where they basically spend hardly anything and they save as much as they can and then they try to make that income, that um, money they've saved work for them like passively have returns and whatever. And then there's a group who still has a reasonable lifestyle but saves a reasonable amount and they retire early and they basically do what they want to do. That might be travel. It might be, I noticed in Claire's article, it said that a lot of them like to blog, you know, so you know, they'll become the Ariana Huffingtons from Huffington Post, you know, they'll yeah. blog, blog, blog all day. But, but it's an interesting concept. I said to Claire, one question I would have liked to ask some of them is, do they feel they can do that because they're of a generation where their parents have already built up wealth and they've got a house that maybe the younger um, younger ones can't afford, but they know in the future that they can maybe not work or they can lead the life they want to because they know that this transgenerational wealth will come to them down the track. Yeah. You know, and they'll inherit their parents' very valuable yeah, I'm house. I'm sure there are plenty of people in that sort of situation. Could be. What, what about the – there's a story there about diversification. Well, this is something that I did because we're um, attempting to build up all these modules, you know, teaching women about, you know, growing wealth. And, you know, we talked about all the different asset classes, you know, shares, property, yeah. you know, collectibles and fixed interest. And then to, to really drum home the idea that it's very rare to get really wealthy if you just put all your money into one asset class. So if you just put everything into property, it might work, but what if the property market tumbles? Mm. If you put all your money into shares, I mean, imagine this last six months or so with COVID, if the share market tumbles. So sensible investment strategy is to diversify. Mm. And so step by step, we're building up all these modules, you know, to teach people how to grow wealth in a very strategic, very sensible way. Yep. Asset classes, I guess you, that's the same sort yeah, of story, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. A lot of people don't understand what asset classes are. For those people who are listening who don't know, what are the key asset classes? Well, just to go through them again, because you weren't listening, I, and I said it, I said it, did I say it too fast I for think, you? I think, <laughs> I think you missed a few out. I was going to add to it just well, to there's actually lots, show you Well, there up. are lots of them. You can never do that. There are lots of them, but the key ones are equities or shares, mm. uh, property, which yep. is, Aussies love property, we know that. Then you've got your fixed interest and you might invest in term deposits for a period of time or government bonds or corporate bonds or corporate bonds you know 
fairly secure, very varying degrees of security um, there. And then you even have things like what's called collectibles, and that could be art, jewelry, fast cars, mm. or stuff like that. Yeah, and okay. okay. Even yeah. gold, you know, could be an asset class. Yeah, commodities, commodities, yeah. 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 Mm. Uh, and a story on the Australian economy, were you trying to put these people asleep or something? Oh, no, God, no, not the way I write. But <laughs> um, no, this, I basically, you know, I wanted to prove my credentials. So mm. I talked about the times at University of New South Wales when I used to sit in with Dr. Fuchi Lu, who was my third year economics tutor, and how he taught us about, you know, the theory of the firm and the intricacies, you know, of diminishing marginal utility and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wake up, Peter, no, wake up. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but really, um, how do you invest if you don't really understand what an economy is, particularly an economy like ours, which mm. is a largely a market economy, you know, a bit of government interference, but how do you understand, you know, the forces of what moves markets if you don't really understand things yeah. about an economy in yeah. the first place? I think it's fair to say that imagine if the Treasurer had said to you at a party uh, early in you know, mid-February mm-hmm. uh, that the way things are going, we might have to close the economy down. Mm. You as an economics thinker would have said, well, if that's going to happen, there's going to be a recession and the stock market's going to collapse. Yeah. I'd go to cash. Mm. So that's, the, I think, the very simple way. Mm. That, that So when you anticipate what an economy might do, it really can help your investing. It can help your wealth building as well. Oh, totally. And I even quoted you in the article. Did you? Because nice you. I remember when you were lecturing at New South Wales Uni yep. and you used to teach, um, you know, students in high schools as well before you went to New South. Mm. And, you know, you had this reputation for being funny. I've never known you to be like that. But very, very yeah. educational. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Teach yeah. through humour. And yeah. most of the jokes you stole from me anyway. But yeah. back to the point was that you used to teach a thing called Suzanne economics yeah. and it was you know the old Suzanne this advertising goes with this goes with this yep. goes with this yep. at Suzanne that's it and oh god and that, that wasn't that was pretty well said I thought yeah, yeah, yeah Claire's giving me the nod yeah it's a little bit a little bit more this goes with this goes with this oh, goes yeah. with this a little bit pumpy. more rhythm yeah but, but I can't, but I can't if, do that you know the whole idea is that we are interconnected. You yep. know, everything in an economy is interconnected on something else. Yeah. Investment down, you know, all that sort of stuff. Those sort of relationships are the sort of Yeah, the key things to understand. And yeah. so my article is a little bit about Suzanne economics, mm. but it also just tries to understand to explain the basic workings of an economy. Okay. So if I was a woman Mm. And I'm not. Mm. But if I was, mm. and I haven't been, um, you know, reading Tilly Money, what would be your strongest pitch to make that person stop reading the other cr- things that they might be reading? And they said crap then. But oh, uh, here uh, I go. Uh, now, Peter, P E T A, Peter right. Switzer, right. are you confident about your financial situation now? Am I supposed to be the, the normal? You're Peter Switzer, oh, the, yeah, woman, the woman, and okay. I'm trying to convince you why well, no, you no, should. No, I really haven't shown much interest in money. Uh, you know, I work hard and mm-hmm. I'm, I've, I've, I've studied hard, but I just sort of spend most of the money I've got on really nice clothes and I go overseas a lot and I, I help people out. I'm, I'm very generous, but I haven't really thought about the future because superannuation is going to save me, I guess. Willard, do you know much about your super, Peter? Yeah, I got it. I've got yeah, super. Got it. Have you yeah. ever checked out your super statement? Do you know Not the really. fees you're paying? No, I don't. You know, no. do you know there could be an insurance policy in your super? I really wished I was as smart as Peter Switzer, P-E-T-E-R, because <laughs> I'd know all the answers. I'd be saying yes to all those sort of things. Yeah, yeah well, let's okay. have a talk about that later. But yeah. you know that Claire Osman has written a wonderful article that everybody – is it Claire? No, I think it's Thea. Mm. Um, Thea McLaughlin wrote an incredible article about – how to read your super statement. Ah. And you know why she read the article? Because she wasn't interested in money, money, you know, of that that, that extent mm. um, 12 months or so ago. And, uh, and she ended up checking out a super statement because of an article that you wrote on Switzer Daily. Ah. And she realised, you know, that yeah. she needed to be in touch with, you know, her super because it was her money and, you know. And Could what cost was it in- hundreds of thousands mm. of dollars ignoring that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, Pete, there is a question that you is often that P- ask. P- it's P- or P-E-T-A? This is to Peter with an E-R, oh, but okay. I'm going to now ask P-E-T-A. Yeah. God, you're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you. Look at what role model I'm supposed to play, the okay. usual one I play every day or the one you've cast <laughs> me into. Okay, Peter okay. the girl. Okay. Peter, 
You sound like you have a nice lifestyle I now. Do. Okay. But and would you like to enjoy that lifestyle all your life? Of course. And I'd like to share it with the people who I really care about as well. Because I'm a sharing, caring kind of girl. Well, the way that you can do that, Peter, yeah. because one other question, would you rather be rich or would you rather be poor? Rich is a lot better. It's a lot better. Well, let us help you to be financially better off. Let us help you be a strong woman who can lead the kind of life that you want to lead, that can help other people, that can share your wealth, can, that can you know, buy things that you know, are sustainable. Go to Tilly Money, Peter, and read the articles, you know, listen to the podcast. Let us do you one of the biggest favours of your life and start putting you on the road to financial independence. The road to riches. The road to riches. There's no other road. Okay, great. So, look, I think you've, you've done the pitch pretty well. Um, Thank you. If I was PETA, I would be into Tilly Money every day. Mm, good. Okay. Anything else you want to say before I say goodbye? No, just um, for anybody out there who you're either the PETA kind of person, um, you might know somebody, you might have a daughter, you might yourself just want to learn how to be more financially independent, go to tillymoney.com.au and you'll be amazed at the variety of content and what it can do for your um, financial situation. It will really improve your bank account for your financial future. Thank you. It will really improve your bottom line. That's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we have a very special guest. We have Peter Credlin. We'll work out where she came from, how she ended up bossing around Tony Abbott and how she's created a media program for and career for herself. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>